Simon, and this is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Much of the world has been anxiously awaiting the midterm elections. Now they're finally behind us and the Democrats have taken the House with the Republicans solidifying their majority in the Senate. Meanwhile, many U.S. allies, especially those in Europe, have been rattled by Trump's disruptive foreign policy agenda so far, and have been holding out on these elections in particular as the moment for a decisive change in U.S. foreign policy posture. So this naturally leads to the big question of today. Will the results of the midterms really change anything when it comes to foreign policy? I'm here with two of GMF's most seasoned political experts, Derek Chalet, executive vice president and a former U.S. assistant secretary of defense, and Jamie Fly, a senior fellow and director of GMF's Asia program and Future of Geopolitics programs, as well as the co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Jamie was also a senior foreign policy advisor to Senator Marco Rubio. Thank you so much, Derek and Jamie, for being here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. First, for our listeners, just kind of a little bit of a nuts and bolts of politics here. The Democrats control the House. The Republicans still control the Senate, which is the body with a little bit more power and control when it comes to foreign policy. But what levers do does the House have and will the new, newly majority Democratic Party have to exercise when it comes to the president's foreign policy when they take office next year? Well, this was not a foreign policy election. Foreign policy issues almost never came up. It's notable that many of the newly elected candidates who are themselves foreign policy experts, former senior officials in the Obama administration and foreign policy, uh, as they were running for office, would never get asked about it, despite the fact that that was part of their background. So this election is not a mandate one way or another on U.S. foreign policy in and of itself. And that makes it very different than, say, for example, the last time the Democrats took over the House in 2006, in which the Iraq War was front and center in that campaign. That said, with the House Democrats in charge, I would expect that the word that we're all talking about in Washington, oversight, will be will be the key to the foreign policy discussion, you know, whether it's on approach to Iran or what's going on with Russia, whether what's happened in the past in terms of Russian interference, but also what the current approach to Russia is. You will see hearings, you will see uh, more of a debate coming out of Capitol Hill on these issues. and But I think the first test and the real legislative test for the president on foreign policy will be regarding trade. And early in the new Congress, the president's renegotiated NAFTA deal, the so-called USMCA, will be before the Congress for approval. And it's unclear to me actually how that's going to play out in terms of the debate on the, with the Democrats in charge of the Congress, because it's going to be a divided Democratic caucus as well as a divided Republican caucus on this. But that will be the first, I expect, legislative test of the president's foreign policy agenda when it comes to the new Congress. But uh, I would also expect that right out of the gate, you're going to have a, a different tenor of the debate, just given that you're going to have Democratic committee chairs and leadership asking hard questions. I think Derek's right about some of the issues that the Democrats could push on uh, from a foreign policy perspective. The question for me will be where they rank those issues in their long list of priorities, because there are some national security-minded House freshmen now who have experience working in government on these issues. But the Democratic base is not 
championing that this Democratic majority should go after Trump's handling of transatlantic relations or most major foreign policy issues. They want blood. They, they want to go after supposed corruption. They want to dig into investigations of the president's tax returns and his personal finances. The way the Trump organization is operating overseas has already been mentioned in the last several days. And those are all going to be red meat uh, issues that I think many in the Democratic base are going to be quite interested in. And where the Democratic majority in the House goes in the early months, what issues they prioritize, what they hold hearings on, what letters and subpoenas they send to the administration, I think is going to be telling about where their priorities are. Uh, And I think they're going to struggle with trying to mesh an interest in having a serious foreign policy discussion with the desires of their base, which is more, I think, in the direction of things like impeachment and trying to rein in some of the president's use of executive power. And so that's going to be an interesting, I think, struggle we're going to see play out on a daily basis uh, in the House. Now that you've brought up kind of those red meat issues, uh, yesterday we saw an interesting, shall we say, press conference. We saw Jeff Sessions make his departure from the White House and a new interim attorney general announced who may or may not be politically friendlier to Trump's stance on the Russia investigation. All of that kind of leading into how will these newly emboldened Democrats in the House approach U.S. posture towards not just the Mueller investigation, but also Russia policy in general? I think a lot of the focus will obviously be on the Mueller investigation. We may be reaching a point in the next month or two where Mueller uh, may actually produce some sort of report. And so a lot of the debate will be framed around that. One interesting question will be on the issue of Russian interference in U.S. democracy as well as that of our allies and whether that remains a, a significant priority for the Democratic majority in the House. There is the potential, I think, for some bipartisan cooperation to shore up some of our vulnerabilities in that area. But again, it's gonna we're going to have to see whether Democratic leadership wants to prioritize those issues over some of the more salacious aspects of the Russia issue. In general, I think the challenge the Democrats are also going to face is the administration, despite the president's own antics and rhetoric at times, continues to move forward with a rather aggressive Russia policy. The Treasury Department continues to add more sanctions every few weeks. There's going to be a determination inside the administration about the full extent of Russian interference in the midterms. And then by the administration's own account, that they will contemplate new sanctions. And so there are things that could be done to urge the administration to be more assertive, to move forward more quickly with some of these actions. But again, I think it's going to be this tug and pull between responsible oversight on serious policy grounds versus the desire to really undermine the president more broadly and to question his authority and and some of his his other decisions. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I agree with Jamie that there's, there's a bipartisan consensus really on Russia policy right now. Uh, If you look at the Congress and it's true, the administration below the level of the president, the bureaucracy or the deep state has been pursuing a pretty robust policy against Russia. But of course, the the dissonant voice in that discussion is the president of the United States himself. So, you know, it's hard to say as the, as this, this, the layers of the onion get peeled back, whether it's from Mueller or whether it's just other 
investigative leads that are followed. And I think the one issue I take with Jamie about the investigation side is this isn't going to be a static situation. I mean, there there will be, no, there are already known things that in a normal situation, any Congress would have looked into of the president. And there are going to be some the Democrats may choose to look into, some that they're not. And then there are going to be many people in the press, uh, others asking, why aren't you looking into this? And then there's going to be new things we'll learn. I mean, that's inevitable. It happens in every administration where new things will happen and there will be questions raised about what is going on inside this administration and what is just responsible oversight ends up getting blown up into this, you know, 24-7 news cycle and then it's all anyone's talking about. So I actually think the Democrats right now have the best of intentions to keep the focus on policy, but I think it's going to be extremely hard, not just for them, but for all of us, frankly, to resist the temptation to make this just the circus. And this actually is I think what Trump wants. I think what he said yesterday or recently in his press conference where he said, you know, I'm willing to work with these Democrats, but if they start investigating me, then the deal's off. Well, that's a pretty obvious ploy just to set it up so he can say, you know, blame them for all the problems we're having because I was willing to work with them if they had, you know, if only they had unilaterally disarmed, then, you know, we would have been able to do something. So I'll stay with you, Derek. Right before the election, you wrote a piece for us, for GMF's website, about how a potential shift in the balance of power on Capitol Hill could potentially give the president even more of an enemy to target and that our European allies could potentially be wrapped up in that kind of political fray. So could you explain that? Because I thought that was a really interesting point that you made. Before this election, I thought that we had one of two outcomes that were possible. One would be a Republican hold of the Congress and Republican majorities in which Trump would be emboldened. And so one option was an emboldened Trump or basically what we ended up getting, which was a Democratic win in the House and a, a Trump that's embattled. But the way the election played out, I, in retrospect now, I realize I, was, I have to amend my choices because we actually have both. We have an emboldened and an embattled Trump because I think Trump looks at the outcome of this election and feels validated uh, in the way that he campaigned in this election and the kinds of rhetoric he used, particularly the last several weeks when things took a particularly ugly turn in terms of the rhetoric. And uh, there was a basically a full-on embrace of white nationalism. And that, to a certain extent, was validated in, in the outcome of these elections, whether it was the governor races in Florida and Georgia, uh, some of these key Senate races. So I think in the president's eyes, he needs to do more of the same. But at the same time, he is going to be embattled. He's someone, he will be the subject of oversight, whether it, it veers into the irresponsible oversight of the kind that uh, certainly the Obama administration was subject to during part of President Obama's term in office by Republicans in the House, or just responsible oversight of, a, of what an administration that has got a lot of questions about its corruption and conflict of interest and its motives and intentions. So I think Trump had made very clear yesterday or in this press conference recently where he said, you know, if, if there are investigations, we're going to go on a war footing. And I think we have to expect that we're going to see, you know, an even, an even more turbulent, if, it's, if one can imagine that, a more turbulent, more distracted, more toxic American political environment in the next couple of years. So we've been talking a lot about areas of contention between Trump and the Democrats in Congress now that the midterms have been decided. But we should also talk about potential areas of agreement and cooperation. So, Jamie, can you talk a little bit about um, are there any areas where we might see some much-needed cooperation 
with the Democratic majority in the House and the president in the coming months. I think one area where you might see uh, more alignment than uh, on, on most foreign policy issues is China and the, the rise of China in Asia, both as a national security challenge for the U.S. and also an economic challenge. Democrats, many Democrats, especially those from the so-called Rust Belt in the Midwest, have for some time been quite hawkish on China, been very concerned about uh, China's unfair uh, trade and economic practices, which they believe were uh, undermining the American worker, leading to job loss in the U.S. And that fits very well with the president's framing of the China challenge. The big question there will be is where where is the president's own heart in that fight? His administration has laid out a national security strategy and national defense strategy, which talk of renewed great power competition with China and Russia. The president, though, has spoken about it mostly in very narrow economic terms. And now there's talk of him potentially sitting down with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the end of November to maybe start some sort of negotiations process towards a deal with the Chinese. So you even might see a scenario where House Democrats end up to the president's right on China. And some of that will just depend on where the president goes, the political pressures he feels from the trade war with China. And so I think the broader issue of China is one where there might be more alignment. Trade is related to that and will also be an interesting case study because there is significant apprehension across both the Democrat, has always been across the Democratic Party, but now also the Republican Party about large, complex trade agreements. And so as the president tries to move forward with some of these renegotiated agreements and get congressional support, there's going to be a significant uh, vote counting effort that will need to take place across both parties to figure out whether there's majority support for these agreements in in the newly uh, democratic controlled house. I want to turn a little bit towards the perspective in Europe. I just want to read a couple of the different reactions that we've gotten from European politicians in the last day that I think are are kind of telling and then Maybe we can go from there. So Franz Timmermans, who's the first vice president of the European Commission, wrote on Twitter that he was, quote, inspired by voters in the U.S. who chose hope over fear, civility over rudeness, and inclusion over racism. But meanwhile, Germany's foreign minister told reporters, on this side of the Atlantic, we have to find an answer to the U.S. motto of America first, which to me can only be Europe united. Uh, So it's a little bit of a different different tone there. And then the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee at the German Bundestag told reporters that they need to, quote, prepare for the possibility that Trump's defeat in the House fires him up, that he intensifies the polarization, the aggression we saw during the campaign. So those are some observations from counterparts on the other side of the Atlantic. How are you guys kind of sensing the mood um, in Europe, especially as Trump is preparing to spend the weekend in Paris with leaders like Macron and Merkel amidst this kind of new political reality that he's navigating? I mean, I think the the challenge for the Europeans is many of them, I think, had hoped that Trumpism would be a passing phenomenon that would quickly be reined in uh, with the Democratic victory in the midterms. And I think the ultimate outcome of all of this is, is Trump is emboldened in part because he was able to deliver significant results for the Republican Party. Any president facing midterm elections would have faced a similar challenge. And he did quite well, all things considered. And his standing with the Republican Party is probably higher than it's ever been at this point. And I think a lot of the fact that there was significant turnout in support of Donald Trump reminded or should remind people that there's 
a significant base that he still maintains of voters who like the results of his presidency. And while some are put off by his style, not all of them are. And so the Euro Europeans need to, to buckle in and, and uh, prepare for another two years of a lot of uncertainty. And they, I think they also need to be concerned, because many of them probably are looking beyond Donald Trump, that he very well could win re-election. Uh, and so they're going to have to factor that into their approach to him and to the United States. My recommendation to them has always been that this is the moment that should remind them also after eight years of an administration, which some of them felt was not as directly engaged in European security and as assertive as it should have been, for Europe to unite and step up, uh, whether it's on spending more on their defense, developing initiatives within the EU that move them forward in the security realm. The challenge they face is they're, they're dealing with a lot of the similar cultural problems, the backlash to globalization, fear of mass migration that the U.S. is, and many or many, uh, most European politicians have not come up with uh, solutions to respond to their voters' concerns in those areas. And so in many European countries, you have this similar divide between the elites and the masses, especially the urban region, uh, rural divide that continues to confound their own politics. And so it's a very delicate time for Europe, but I do think the, the major lesson for the mid, from the midterms for them should be that Donald Trump is here to stay for now. He very well could come back after 2020 and that this is not just a passing phenomenon. This is uh, something deeper that's going on in America that they're going to have to deal with and come up with their own measures given this uncertainty that uh, has now presented itself to the transatlantic alliance. I mean, I've been heartened by is that the Europeans so far, and it's the quotes you've read suggest this or reinforce this, that they have not tried, they've not overinterpreted the results one way or another. I mean, my fear was that, particularly if the Democrats were to regain the majority of, of the House, which was always the expectation, but even more so, had they pulled off a miracle, frankly, and kept the Senate, then it would have, there would have been a, a sense among some Europeans to say, okay, it's all over. Like, this is a passing phenomenon, which I never thought was the case. Now, again, the election was revealing and that the national popular vote, if you added up all the congressional votes, it, is, it essentially was the same breakdown as the as the popular vote in 2016, roughly 51-46, So, you know, Trump is, he's still shown that he can get out his base and Trumpism is not going away, but it's not a growing pie. And one would have to, one would expect at least that in a situation perhaps in the next two years where the economy is not as good as it is, it's remarkable how well the American economy is doing, in a situation in the world that is perhaps more troubling than even today's world. I mean, the U.S. is not, a, I mean, we're not in an Iraq or an Afghanistan in the in the same way that we were in 2006, that even that 46% starts to to uh, to go down in terms of the support for the president. So, you know, I think that that it's, at, Jamie's absolutely right, that the Europeans need to, this, if, if this doesn't incentivize them to step up in a way that, presidents from both political parties and people like Jamie and I have been saying they should for the last 10 plus years. Uh, I don't know what's going to motivate them. Uh, I think it's fitting that President Trump is going to be in Europe this weekend for a commemoration of an event a century ago that was driven by many of the same forces that we're seeing in global politics today that itself came right on the heels of an era in which many people thought of with great optimism about the interconnectedness in the world and the fact that now you know, we could be in a new moment of, of global peace that, of course, ended in the ashes of World War I, but the, with a 
the forces of nationalism and the use of fear and the exploitation of grievance to try to mobilize politics, that's something that's happening here in the United States. It's happening throughout Europe. So one would hope that as world leaders get together to to take note and to to reflect on this moment from a century ago, that it causes some self-introspection there as well. I don't hold out a lot of hope for that among some of the leaders who will be gathering, but nothing else, maybe it will cause those of us that's just citizens to reflect back on the forces that led well-meaning people to do terrible things to themselves a century ago and just remind ourselves that we're capable of that today if we make the wrong decisions. Thank you guys both so much for joining. Thank you. Before we go, we want to hear back from you. Out of Order now has a special email address for listeners to send us their comments and questions about our episodes or suggestions for topics to cover in the future. It's easy to remember, outoforder at gmfus.org. You'll find it below in the episode description. Drop us a line. We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. Out of Order is produced by Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant. New episodes will be available every other Thursday. Subscribe and download on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts.